Section seven of a life's morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. A life's morning by George Gissing. Section seven. Chapter five. Part one. The shadow of home. The house which was the end of Emily's journey was situated two miles outside the town of Dunfield, on the high road going southward, just before it enters upon a rising tract of common land known as the Heath. It was one of a row of two-storied dwellings, built of glazed brick, each with a wide projecting window on the right hand of the front door, and with a patch of garden railed in from the road, the row being part of a straggling colony, which is called Bambrig. Immediately opposite these houses stood an ecclesiastical edifice of depressing appearance, stone-built, wholly without ornament, presenting a corner to the highway, a chapel of ease for worshippers unable to go as far as Dunfield in the one direction, or the village of Pendle in the other. Scattered about were dwelling-houses, old and new, the former being cottages of the poorest and dirtiest kind, the latter brick structures of the most unsightly form, evidently aiming at constituting themselves into a thoroughfare, and, in point of fact, already rejoicing in the name of Regent Street. There was a public house, or rather, as it frankly styled itself in large letters on the window, a dram shop, and there were two or three places for the sale of very miscellaneous articles, exhibiting the same specimens of discouraging stock throughout the year. At no season, and under no advantage of sky, was Bambrig a delectable abode. Though within easy reach of country, which was not without rural aspects, it was marked too unmistakably with the squalor of a manufacturing district. Its existence impressed one as casual. It was a mere bit of Dunfield got away from the main mass, and having brought its dirt with it. The stretch of road between it and the bridge by which the river was crossed into Dunfield had in its long, hard ugliness something dispiriting though hedges bordered it here and there they were stunted and grimed though fields were seen on this side and on that the grass had absorbed too much mill smoke to exhibit wholesome verdure it was fed upon by sheep and cows seemingly turned in to be out of the way till needed for slaughter and by the sorriest of superannuated horses the land was blighted by the curse of what we name, using a word as ugly as the thing it represents, industrialism. As the cab brought her along this road from Dunfield Station, Emily thought of the downs, the woodlands, the fair pastures of Surrey. There was sorrow in her heart, even a vague tormenting fear. It would be hard to find solace in Bambrig. Hither her parents had come to live when she was thirteen years old, her home having previously been in another and a larger manufacturing town her father was a man marked for ill fortune it pursued him from his entrance into the world and would inevitably you read it in his face hunt him into a sad grave he was the youngest of a large family his very birth had been an added misery to a household struggling with want his education was of the slightest at twelve years of age he was already supporting himself or one would say keeping himself above the point of starvation, and at three-and-twenty, the age when Wilfred Athel is entering upon life in the joy of freedom, was ludicrously bankrupt, 
a petty business he had established being sold up for a debt something short of as many pounds as he had years he drifted into indefinite mercantile clerkships an existence possibly preferable to that of the fourth circle of inferno and then seemed at length to have fallen upon a piece of good luck such as according to a maxim of pathetic optimism wherewith he was wont to cheer himself must come to every man sooner or later provided he do not die of hunger whilst it is on the way he married a schoolmistress one miss martin who was responsible for the teaching of some twelve or fifteen children of tender age and who what was more owned the house in which she kept school the result was that james hood once more established himself in business or rather in several businesses vague indescribable save by those who are unhappy enough to understand such matters a commission agency a life insurance agency and a fire insurance ditto i know not what yet the semblance of prosperity was fleeting as if connection with him meant failure his wife's school which she had not abandoned let us employ negative terms in speaking of this pair began to fall off ultimately no school was left it did in truth appear that miss martin had suffered something in becoming mrs hood at her marriage she was five-and-twenty fairly good-looking in temper a trifle exigent perhaps sanguine and capable of exertion she could not claim more than superficial instruction but taught reading and writing with the usual success which attends teachers of these elements after the birth of their first child emily her moral nature showed an unaccountable weakening the origin was no doubt physical but in story-telling we dwell very much on the surface of things it is not permitted us to describe human nature too accurately the exigence of her temper became something generally described by a harsher term she lost her interest in the work which she had unwillingly entrusted for a time to an assistant she found the conditions of her life hard alas they grew harder after emily two children were successively born fate was kind to them and neither survived infancy their mother fell into fretting into hysteria some change in her life seemed imperative and at length she persuaded her husband to quit the town in which they lived and begin life anew elsewhere begin life anew james hood was forty years old he possessed as the net result of his commercial enterprises a capital of a hundred and thirty pounds the house of course could be let and would bring five-and-twenty pounds a year this it was resolved to do he had had certain dealings in dunfield and in dunfield he would strike his tent that is to say in bambrig whence he walked daily to a little office in the town rents were lower in bambrig and it was beyond the range of certain municipal taxings mrs hood possessed still her somewhat genteel furniture one article was a piano and upon this she taught emily her notes it had been a fairly good piano once but the keys had become very loose they were looser than ever now that emily tried to play on them on her return from surrey business did not thrive in dunfield yet there was more than ever need that it should for to neglect emily's education would be to deal cruelly with the child she would have nothing else to depend upon in her battle with the world poor emily a feeble overgrown child needing fresh air which she could not get needing food of a better kind just as unattainable large-eyed thin-cheeked emily she too already in the clutch of the great brute world 
the helpless victim of a civilization which makes its food of those the heart most pities how well if her last sigh had been drawn in infancy if she had lain with the little brother and sister in that gaunt grimy cemetery under the shadow of mill chimneys she was reserved for other griefs for consolations it is true but education she did get by hook or by crook there was dire pinching to pay for it and too well knowing this the child strove her utmost to use the opportunities offered her each morning going into dunfield taking with her some sandwiches that were called dinner walking home again by tea-time tired hungry ah hungry no matter the weather she must walk her couple of miles it was at least so far to the school in winter you saw her set forth with her waterproof and umbrella the too heavy bag of books on her arms sometimes the wind and rain beating as if to delay her they too cruel in summer the hot days tried her perhaps still more she reached home in the afternoon well-nigh fainting the books were so heavy who would not have felt kindly to her so gentle she was so dreadfully shy and timid her eyes so eager so full of unconscious pathos hood's little girl said the people on the way who saw her pass daily and however completely strangers they said it with a certain kindness of tone and meaning a little thing that happened one day take it as an anecdote on her way to school she passed some boys who were pelting a most wretched dog a poor scraggy beast driven into a corner emily so timid usually she could not raise her eyes before a stranger stopped quivering all over commanded them to cease their brutality divine compassion became a heroism the boys somehow did her bidding and walked on together emily stayed behind opened her bag threw something for the dog to eat it was half her dinner her mind braced itself she had a passionate love of learning all books were food to her fortunately there was the library of the mechanics institute but for that she would have come short of mental sustenance for her father had never been able to buy more than a dozen volumes and these all dealt with matters of physical science the strange things she read books which came down to her from the shelves with a thickness of dust upon them histories of greece and rome not much asked for these said the librarian translations of old classics the koran mosheim's ecclesiastical history works of swedenborg all the poetry she could lay her hands on novels not a few one day she asked for a book on gymnoblastic hydroids the amazing title in the catalogue had filled her with curiosity she must know the meaning of everything she was not idle emily but things in the home were going from bad to worse when emily was sixteen her father scarcely knew where to look for each day's dinner something must be done activity took a twofold direction first of all emily got work as a teacher in an infant school it was at her own motion she could bear her mother's daily querulousness no longer she must take some step she earned a mere trifle but it was earning instead of being a source of expense and in the meantime she worked on for certain examinations which it would benefit her to have passed the second thing done was that her father abandoned his office and obtained a place in the counting-house of the worsted mill under the firm of dagworthy and son 
His salary was small, but the blessing of it was its certainty. The precariousness of his existence had all but driven poor Hood mad. There came a season of calm. Emily's sphere of work extended itself. The school only took her mornings, and for the afternoon there was proposed to her the teaching of the little Baxendales. The Baxendales were well-to-do people. The father was, just then, mayor of Dunfield. The mother was related to the Member of Parliament for the town. We have had mention of them as connections of Beatrice Redwing. At nineteen, for the first time, she left home. Through the Baxendales she obtained the position of governess in a family residing in Liverpool, and remained with them till she went to London, to the Athels. These three years in Liverpool were mementos for her. They led her from girlhood to womanhood, and established her character. Her home was in the house of a prosperous shipowner, a Lancashire man, outwardly a blustering, good-tempered animal, yet with an inner light which showed itself in his love of books and pictures, in his easy walking under the burden of self-acquired riches, in a certain generous freedom which marked his life and thoughts. His forename was Lawrence. Emily, in letters to her father, used to call him Lorenzo the Magnificent, a title which became him well enough. In the collection of works of art he was really great. He must have spent appalling sums annually on his picture gallery and the minor ornaments scattered about his house. He had a personal acquaintance, through his pecuniary dealings, with the foremost artists of the day. He liked to proclaim the fact and describe the men. To Emily the constant proximity of these pictures was a priceless advantage. The years she spent among them were equivalent to a university course. Moreover, she enjoyed, as with the Athels later, a free command of books. Here began her acquaintance with the most modern literature, which was needful to set her thoughts in order, to throw into right perspective her previous miscellaneous reading, and to mark out her way in the future. Her instinctive craving for intellectual beauty acquired a reflective consistency. She reformed her ideals, found the loveliness of much that in her immaturity had seemed barren, put aside. With gentle firmness, much that had appeared indispensable to her moral life. The meanings which she had attached to that word moral largely modified themselves. That they should do so was the note of her progress. Her prayer was for beauty in the inward soul, which, if it grew to be her conviction, was greatly, perhaps wholly, dependent on the perception of external beauty. The development of beauty in the soul would mean a life of ideal purity. All her instincts pointed to such a life. Her passionate motives converged on the one end of spiritual chastity. One ever-present fear she had to strive with in her progress towards serene convictions. The misery of her parents' home haunted her, and by no effort could she expel the superstition that she had only escaped from that for a time, that its claws would surely overtake her and fix themselves again in her flesh. Analysing her own nature, she discerned, or thought she did, a lack of independent vigour. It seemed as if she were too reliant on external circumstances. She dreaded what might follow if their assistance were withdrawn. To be sure, she had held her course through the countless discouragements of early years, but that, in looking back, seemed no assurance for the future. Her courage, it appeared to her, had been of the unconscious kind, and might fail her when she consciously demanded it. 
As a child she had once walked in her sleep, had gone forth from the house, and had, before she was awakened, crossed the narrow footing of a canal lock, a thing her nervousness would not allow her to do at other times. This became to her a figure. The feat she had performed when mere vital instinct guided her, she would have failed in when attempting it with the full understanding of its danger. Suppose something happened which put an end to her independence, failure of health, some supreme calamity at home. Could she hold on in the way of salvation? Was she capable of conscious heroism? Could her soul retain its ideal of beauty, if environed by ugliness? The vice of her age, nay, why call it a vice, the necessary issue of that intellectual egoism, which is the note of our time, found as good illustration in this humble life as in men and women who are the mouthpieces of civilization. Preoccupied with problems of her own relation to the world, she could not enjoy without thought in the rear, ever ready to trouble her with suggestions of unreality. Her distresses of conscience were all the more active for being purely human. In her soul dwelt an immense compassion, which, with adequate occasion, might secure to itself such predominance as to dwarf into inefficiency her religion and culture. It was exquisite misery to conceive, as from inner observation, she so well could, some demand of life which would make her ideals appear the dream of bygone halcyon days, useless and worse amid the threats of gathering tempest. An essentially human apprehension, be it understood, the vulgarities of hysterical pietism Emily had never known. She did not fear the invasion of such blight as that, and thought of it as noisome to her. Do you recall a kind of trouble that came upon her during that talk in the hollow, when Wilfrid suggested the case of her being called upon to make some great sacrifice in her father's behalf? It was an instance of the weakness I speak of. The fact of Wilfrid's putting forward such a thought had, in that moment, linked her to him with precious bonds of sympathy, till she felt as if he had seen into the most secret places of her heart. She dreaded the force of her compassionateness, that dog by the roadside, how the anguish of its eyes had haunted her through the day. It was the revolt of her whole being against the cruelty inherent in life. That evening she could not read the book she had in hand. Its phrases seemed to fall into triviality. Yet, she reasoned at a later time, it should not have been so. The haggard gaze of face should not daunt one. Pity is but an element in the soul's ideal of order. It should not usurp a barren sovereignty. It is the miserable contradiction in our lot that the efficiency of the instincts of beauty-worship waits upon a force of individuality attainable only by a sacrifice of sensibility. Emily divined this. So it was that she came to shun the thought of struggle, to seek an abode apart from turbid conditions of life. She was hard at work building for her soul a lordly pleasure-house, its palace of art. Could she, poor as she was, dependent, bound by such obvious claims to her gross earth, hope to abide in her courts and corridors for ever. Friday was the day of her arrival at Bambrig. On the Saturday afternoon she hoped to enjoy a walk with her father. He would reach home from the mill shortly after two o'clock, and would then have his dinner. Mrs. Hood dined at one, and could not bring herself to alter the hour for Saturday. It was characteristic of her, that there might be no culinary cares on Sunday morning. She always cooked her joint of meat on the last day of the week, 
partaking of it herself at one o'clock. She cut slices for her husband and kept them warm with vegetables in the oven. This was not selfishness in theory, however much it may have been so in practice. It merely meant that she was unable to introduce variation into a mechanical order, and, as her husband never dreamed of complaining, Mrs. Hood could see in the arrangement no breach of the fitness of things, even though it meant that poor Hood never sat down to a freshly cooked meal from one end of the year to the other. To Emily it was simply a detestable instance of the worst miseries she had to endure at home. Coming on this first day, it disturbed her much. She knew the uselessness, the danger, of opposing any traditional habit, but her appetite at one o'clock was small. Mrs. Hood did not keep a servant in the house. She engaged a charwoman once a week, and did all the work at other times herself. This was not strictly necessary, the expense of such a servant as would have answered the purposes could just have been afforded. Again and again Emily had entreated to be allowed to pay a girl out of her own earnings. Mrs. Hood steadily refused. No, she had once known what it was to have luxuries about her. That was naturally before her marriage. But those days were gone by. She thus entailed upon herself a great deal of labour, at once repugnant to her tastes and ill-suited to the uncertainty of her health. But all this was forgotten in the solace of possessing a standing grievance, one obvious at all moments, to be uttered in a sigh, to be emphasised by the affectation of cheerfulness. The love which was Emily's instinct grew chill in the presence of such things. Saturday was from of old a day of ills. The charwoman was in the house, and Mrs. Hood went about in a fatigued way, coming now and then to the sitting-room, sinking into a chair, letting her head fall back with closed eyes. Emily had, of course, begged to be allowed to give assistance, but her mother declared that there was nothing whatever she could do. "'Shut the door,' she said, "'and then you won't hear the scrubbing so plainly. I can understand that it annoys you. I used to have the same feeling, but I've accustomed myself.' You might play something. It would keep away your thoughts. But I don't want to keep away my thoughts, exclaimed Emily with a laugh. I want to help you so that you will have done the sooner. No, no, my dear, you are not used to it. You'll tell me when you'd like something to eat if you get faint. I am not likely to grow faint, mother, if I do nothing. Well, well, I have a sinking feeling now and then. I thought you might be the same. Just when his dinner in the oven had time to grow crusty, Mr. Hood arrived. He was a rather tall man of sallow complexion, with greyish hair. The peculiarly melancholy expression of his face was due to the excessive drooping of his eyelids under rounded brows. Beneath the eyes were heavy lines. He generally looked like one who has passed through a night of sleepless grief. He wore a suit of black, which had for some years been his reserve attire, till it grew too seamy for use on Sundays. The whole look of the man was saddening. To pass him in the street as a stranger was to experience a momentary heaviness of heart. He had very long, slender fingers, Emily's matchless hand in a rudimentary form, and it seemed to be a particular solicitude to keep them scrupulously clean. He frequently examined them and appeared to have a pleasure in handling things in a dainty way. The pages of a book, for instance. When he smiled, it was obviously with effort, a painful smile, for all that an exceedingly gentle one. In his voice there was the same gentleness, a self-suppression, as it were. His way of speaking half explained his want of success in life. 
Emily was standing at the window in expectation of his coming. As soon as he reached the iron gate in front of the house, she ran to open the door for him. He did not quicken his step, even stopped to close the gate with deliberate care, but if his face could ever be said to light up, it did so as he bent to the girl's kiss. She took his hat from him and went to see that his dinner was made ready. How fine it is, he said in his subdued tone, when he came downstairs and stood by the table, stroking his newly washed hands. Shall we have a walk before tea-time? Mother is too busy, I'm afraid. Mrs. Hood came into the room shortly and seated herself in the usual way. Did you bring the cake? she asked, when her presence had caused silence for a few moments. The cake? he repeated in surprise. Didn't I ask you to bring a cake? I suppose my memory is going. I meant to, and I thought I mentioned it at breakfast. I shall have nothing for Emily's tea. Emily protested that it was needless to get unusual things on her account. We must do what we can to make you comfortable, my dear. I can't keep a table like that you are accustomed to, but that I know you don't expect. Which way are you going to walk this afternoon? If you pass a shop, you might get a cake, or buns, whichever you like. Well, I thought we might have a turn over the heath, said Mr. Hood. However, we'll see what we can do. A thought of some anxious kind appeared suddenly to strike Mrs. Hood. She leaned forward in her chair, seemed to listen, then started up and out of the room. Emily sat where she could not see her father eating. It pained, exasperated her to be by him while he made such a meal. He ate slowly with thought of other things. At times his eye wandered to the window, and he regarded the sky in a brooding manner. He satisfied his hunger without pleasure, apparently with indifference. Shortly after three o'clock, the two started for their walk. Not many yards beyond the house, the road passed beneath the railway bridge, then over a canal, and at once entered upon the common. The heath formed the long side of a slowly rising hill. At the foot, the road divided itself into two branches, and the dusty tracks climbed at a wide angle with each other. The one which Emily and her father pursued led up to stone quarries, which had been for a long time in working, and, skirting these to the level ground above them, which was the end of the region of firs and bracken. Here began a spacious tract of grassy common. Around it were houses of pleasant appearance, one or two meriting the name of mansion. In one of them dwelt Mr. Richard Dagworthy, the mill-owner, in whose counting-house James Hood earned his living. He alone represented the firm of Dagworthy and Son, his father had been dead two years, and more recently he had become a widower, his wife leaving him one child, still an infant. End of Section 7 Chapter 5 Part 1